I was thinking as uh, we're getting ready to finish up Revelation today, we'll be in chapter 21 and 22 and uh, talking about heaven on earth. And it made me think about a mission trip that I took years ago, one of our trips to Kenya. And uh, we had the opportunity to stop over at a safari and uh, stayed at a place where we could see Mount Kilimanjaro from the tent. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. And I had two thoughts run through my head at the time. The first one was, you know, I mean, it's clear night sky, just crystal clear. The moon is out. This top of this mountain is just being lit up. It was absolutely beautiful. And I thought to myself, this is probably the most romantic setting I've ever been in. And Sean was back at home, and I was rooming with my friend Todd. And I just thought, bummer, you know, major bummer. That was my first thought. My second thought was, this is heaven on earth. You know, you, you, have you ever had those moments where, like, man, this is, is kind of like heaven on earth? Um, that day will come literally when we will have heaven on earth. And that's what we're going to study about and read about today in the book of Revelation. In fact, why don't we just jump on in. Revelation chapter 21 and we'll, we'll cover 21 and 22 today, but let's start with the first 14 verses of chapter 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Uh, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So this begins by talking about uh, verse 1. It says, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, that is a theme that we see throughout Scripture, that the current earth, and I don't know if we think about it as much, heaven is the same way. Heaven and earth will, will be recreated. Um, and we see it. A lot of different places. For example, Matthew 24, which if you've been reading along uh, our chronological reading plan, 
we were in Matthew 24, I think on Tuesday of this week. It is remarkable to me how often the things that we are reading tie into what we're studying in Revelation. This was one of them. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then 2 Peter 3.10 says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Even the Old Testament speaks to this. In Isaiah 65.17 it says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. So this has always been God's plan from the very beginning is to create a new heaven, new earth. And we see that coming to fruition in Revelation 21. In fact, this new Jerusalem is described as being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we've seen that the bride of Christ sometimes refers to the body of Christ, us as believers. Sometimes it refers to the nation of Israel. Here it refers to heaven, uh, coming this new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Uh, But at this point, keep in mind, all sin has been completely obliterated. So the... the, um, False prophet and the beast have been thrown in the lake of fire. We saw last week, Satan was thrown into the lake of fire. We saw the great white throne judgment, where anyone who does not have faith in Christ, is not trusted in Christ, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life. So all that's happened. Everything's been done away with. Evil is gone. And now we have this this new heaven on earth, literally, because it says this new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven to earth, and verse 2 tells us that that this is what we have to look forward to. Now, I want to spend most of our time this morning talking about, okay, what's heaven going to be like? What are some things we see about what this this heaven will be? But I also want to answer some questions along the way best we can. In fact, we're going to ask more questions, and we're going to be able to give definitive answers because some of these don't have a definite answer, but we can certainly um, get, get a pretty good idea from what we do know of Scripture. One of the questions is this, okay, so the things that are being described in Revelation are future tense, right? This is after lake of fire, everything's destroyed, then there's the new heaven and new earth. What about now? What about a believer who dies right now? Because normally what we think of is Revelation 21, right, and 22, but this is describing the new heaven. So what happens to a person that that dies today until this point in time? And I'll tell you first what I know for sure, and then an idea. What we absolutely know for sure is that we will be in the presence of God. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So when we die, we will be in the presence of God, in some form of heaven, whatever we may call that. Now, will that be the final heaven that's described here? I don't think we can know the answer to that for sure. But let me tell you a a kind of a wild idea that I have. And again, this is not scripture, but this is just, you know, who knows how God may do things I wonder if it's possible that when we die, somehow we get fast-forwarded to Revelation 21, if that makes any sense at all. It's like, because we're bound by time now, I wonder when we die, if all of a sudden the end is there, you know, and everything is taking place. I don't know. I just know God's not bound by time. I do know that we will be with God. I do know that we have this to look forward to, whether that is immediately when we die now or whether at some point in the future we still uh, have this to look forward to. And the thing that, that makes heaven so unique, we see it in verse 3. It, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
uh, and woman, that's, that's the generic mankind there. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Here's what makes heaven so unique. Heaven is a place where God dwells among his people. That word dwelling place, God will dwell with them or he will make his dwelling place. This is the word for tabernacle. Uh, same word that, that, that is used to describe the tabernacle. If you recall in the Old Testament, when God first led his people out of Egypt and they were wandering in the desert, he, he set up a tabernacle that was a dwelling place for God. And there was a holy place and there was the most holy place that only the high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. That was the dwelling place of God. But in heaven it says that God will dwell among his people. Now we know that we have the presence of God in us now because when we trust in Christ we have the Holy Spirit come live inside of us. So we do have the presence of God. But there's going to be something different about physically being in the presence of Christ. You know, being able to see him face to face. I just think that's that's going to be more magnificent than we can imagine. And in fact, in John 1:14 in John 1, it talks about, you know, early in the chapter was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Then you get to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and did what? You remember? Made His dwelling among us, or dwelt among us. Same word. So just as Christ came to dwell among us, Christ will dwell among us in heaven. Uh, this will be the, the, the place where He's located. We'll see Him face to face. Let's skip ahead a little bit to the end of chapter 21 or toward the end, verse 22, because I want us to see what that will be like. Uh, just to, to, to feel and experience a little bit of what's it going to be like to be physically in the presence of Christ. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the city, you get this image, the city is bright and brilliant. The light is constantly shining, but there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no nighttime. It's day all the time. There's really no need to sleep. Because stop and think about it. Our bodies, we sleep because our bodies need to heal and restore. Well, our body, we'll have resurrected bodies. We won't need that anymore. But there, the heaven will be a bright place because of the presence of God, the glory of God is what gives light to heaven. And we see this in different places in Scripture as well. Where the glory of God is manifest, things glow, right? Do you remember Moses meeting with God and then he would put a veil over his face because his face was glowing after he would be in the presence of God? Or think about Jesus when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and his full glory was revealed and it says that he became, his clothes even became as bright as, as lightning, you know, he just had this presence that glowed from him. That's the glory of God. That same glory will light up heaven. So heaven is a place where, where God dwells with us. But we also see that heaven is a place of unending joy. Back to the beginning of, of chapter 21 there, uh, where it says in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither there should be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Uh, you know, this next verse after... 
talking about the presence of God, says no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But have you ever asked yourself this question? Okay, if there's no more crying, why is God wiping tears from our eyes? Ever wonder that? And th- there could be a couple of answers to that question. One possibility is, is that it's saying, in a sense, that tears have been wiped away. Like there's no more. They don't exist anymore. That's one possibility of a way that we can understand it. But there's a second way that we can understand it, and that is that these are not tears of sadness. These are a different kind of tears. You know, one of the things um, i share with you a little bit about myself. I, I'm not a big crier when it comes to being sad. Very rarely do I cry sad tears. If I'm crying sad tears, that, that, that's like a big deal. Uh, that's just not the way I process sadness. Not because I think it's wrong, not because I think it's weak or men shouldn't cry or be sad. That's not it at all. But I do cry. Uh, when I cry, it's usually not because of sadness. It's because something has touched me very deeply. Uh, my kids used to make fun of me when they were little. We would watch cartoons and kids shows. And they'd find me crying at stuff because there'd be a scene where, you know, maybe there was a child that lost a parent or felt unloved by the parent. And I'm over there tearing up. You know, my kids are laughing at me because that's important to me. Like, that, that's a very tender spot for me. I care very much about uh, my kids knowing how much they're loved. Um, which, speaking of that, little shout out to my oldest, Brookie, today. She's 25. So if y'all know Brooke, text her and tell her happy birthday today. Um, but love you, Brookie, and I'm proud of you. But, you know, things that, that do touch me deeply, or if God is working. I think I've shared that before, but I know when God is stirring in me because I get emotional. And, it, and it, there are tears that come when God is doing something really special. I have no doubt, I'm 100% sure that when I get to heaven someday, and I see with my own eyes the things that we're reading here and see Jesus face to face. There are going to be tears. And it's not going to be tears of sadness. It's tears of joy and just tears of, oh my goodness, I'm so overwhelmed by how incredible this is. And God is going to wipe those tears from our eyes. But it is clear that, that it, they won't be tears of pain. In fact, it says there will be no crying and no pain. No need for these anymore. Praise God. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to be able to play pickleball in heaven. I'll never get hurt again. No mourning. You know, I mean, think about the things that, that we mourn and the sadness and all the things that can be so devastating. Sometimes the mourning is way, way more painful than a physical injury of some sort. But all of those things will be gone. We won't have those things anymore. Um, praise God that, that you know, that's what we have to look forward to. Now, another question that sometimes comes up is this. Okay, we're talking about all this, but right in the middle of this, a couple of different times, it also references the lake of fire, and it references those whose names are not in the book of life being thrown in the lake of fire. So have you ever wondered this question? If there's no mourning in heaven, what about, will we be aware of those that aren't there? Will we, because we mourn for loved ones that, that don't know Jesus, that aren't going to be in heaven. So how does that work? And again, we don't really know the answer to that. We just know God says there will be no mourning. It's possible that he just kind of removes those memories from our minds. Like sometimes if you go through something traumatic and you know, it just kind of gets shut out and you don't remember that anymore. I mean, God could do that. God could do it any way he wants to do it. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he is. And, and there will be no more mourning in heaven. Here's something else that we see about heaven, and that is that heaven is a place of indescribable beauty. 
I mean, just John does a really good job here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, but of trying to communicate the beauty of heaven in ways that we can understand. But again, I'm thinking that he's grasping for words here. How do you describe something that is more beautiful than you can describe? You know, verse 11, um, you know, it says, The glory of God, its radiance is like a rare jewel, uh, like jasper, clear as crystal. It talks here about gold that, again, is transparent. You know, when we think about streets of gold, um, it, it describes, we didn't read all of this, but it describes uh, further on the, the gates and the walls. And it says that the walls have all these different precious gems that are part of the walls. I mean, the beauty of God is just, it has to be beyond what our minds are capable of grasping and understanding. Uh, but again, he does a good job of trying to describe it in ways that we can understand. Um, Look at verse 19, the foundations of the wall in the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And then it goes through and, and lists all those different jewels. Um, and then it says that there were 12 gates and that each gate was made of a single pearl. I mean, think about that for a minute. Just try to let your mind imagine a massive gate made of a, of a single pearl. That's a big pearl. That's a big oyster, isn't it? With this... Massive gate made, you know, of pearl. I, and again, another question. All these questions come to mind. Maybe, maybe you're the same way. But I read this, and all this stuff pops in my head. I'm like, why? Why is there a gate? Because it's never closed. Did you notice that? It says the gate is always open during the day, and there's no such thing as night. So that means the gate is always open. So why have a gate in the first place if it's never going to be closed? One. Again, possibility. These are just some ideas, but one possibility is it's beautiful. It just adds to the majesty. It's just gorgeous to see this massive gate. But I think there may be something else to it. I suspect that seeing the gate in heaven might remind us of the words of Jesus in John 10, verse 9. He said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. This gate in heaven, I think, will remind us there's only one way, and that is through the gate. That's through Jesus. He is the way that we enter into heaven, and he is the only way. So heaven is described with just, you know, just the beauty, the majesty. Um, if you've ever been to a place that just kind of takes your breath away, you know, we, we've, um, I can think of a couple of examples. One of those was last summer when Sean and I got to go to Alaska for the first time. And one of the things that, that made that trip really cool, not only did we get to take in just the beauty of God's creation there, uh, but we got to visit with our friends Mark and Sherilyn, and, and, and they got to show us those things. We got to do that together with them. Or I think about the time, uh, it's been, gosh, 20 plus, over 20 years ago, that we took a family trip to Hawaii and got to take in the, the beauty of creation there but to do that with family. So, you know, there's something really awe-inspiring about seeing things that are beautiful. But to be able to see those things with God, being in the presence of God, being in the presence of our loved ones, I mean, to experience those things together, that, man, that's something to, to really look forward to. And all of this is just so mind-boggling and almost too good to be true kind of stuff that listen to what he says in verse 5 and 6. It says, behold, I'm making all things new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's like, hey, you got to believe me here. I'm telling you the truth. And he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I mean, it's like, I, I know this sounds so good, but it's all true. I am the God who can and has made all this happen. You can take it to the bank. So heaven is a beautiful place. But then it's described also, um, the, the layout of heaven is described to us. And the translation I'm reading from here, the ESV says 12,000 stadia. Most of us probably don't know what that is. So let's translate that to something we can understand. It's about 1,500 miles. So the layout, heaven is laid out like a cube. It's the same length, width, and height. 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high. Now again, to, to give us some perspective, 1,500 miles wide. If you were to take off from here and start driving west, you would go through Los Angeles and end up about 200 miles into the Pacific Ocean. That's how far 1,500 miles is. Or if you were to take off and start driving north, you would cross the border of Canada and go about 300 miles into Canada. If you were to try to wrap your mind around how high is 1,500 miles high, I mentioned Mount Kilimanjaro earlier, more than 400 of those stacked on top of one another would be 1,500 miles high. Heaven's a big place. Now again, how is that going to work? I don't know. Are there streets that go sideways and vertical? At the, I don't know. But it's going to be a big place. And it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful place. All right, let's keep reading. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The last thing I want to point out to you today, this is pretty cool to me to think about, is that heaven is the restoration of Eden. It's like going back to the Garden of Eden, and it describes here, it talks about the tree of life. You remember the tree of life from Eden? That's what Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from, and, and it kept their health and, and gave them life. But when they rebelled against God, when sin entered into the equation, they were put out of the Garden of Eden. There was a flaming sword put there so they couldn't come back. But they no longer had access to this tree of life, which I believe is a, an act of grace, actually, because of the, the separation from God uh, that happened at that moment. Um, but... In heaven, we will once again have access to the tree of life. And we're introduced to something else there that we've not seen before, and that is the river of the water of life. And we see that God says, drink, come, drink freely from the water of life. We see that in chapter 21 and 22. And then this tree uh, of life, which is on both sides of the river, so it's probably really multiple trees, but one source, the tree of life. It says that the leaves were for the healing of the nations. Again, we might read that and say, well, why? It was heaven. There's no sickness. What's the healing of the nations? Well, that word can also mean giving health. So I think it's the idea that this, this maintains our health. Um, verse 3 says there will be, nothing will be accursed anymore. Again, going back to Eden, the curse is what changed everything. You know, when, when Adam and Eve sinned and God said this is your punishment for that. You know, one of the questions that sometimes comes up and when we read about cursed 
makes me think about this. Well, we have jobs in heaven. Will we work? And the Bible doesn't say specifically, but here's my, what I think the answer is yes. And the reason I think the answer is yes is because Adam had a job. He worked in the Garden of Eden before sin entered into the world and before the curse came. Now, the curse made his job miserable at times. It made it very difficult. So if we do work, you're going to love your job. All right? So you don't have to worry about that. But there is no more curse in heaven. And in verse 4, again, just reminds us what makes heaven so incredible. We will see God's face. We will have his name written on our foreheads. It's going to be a remarkable um, place to be. Again, verse 6, you know, these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 7 says he's coming soon, which could mean soon like we think about it, but also it means it's going to happen in a flash. You know, just like Scripture says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 2 Peter 3, 10, both of those talk about coming like a thief in the night. So the point is be ready. In fact, that's the point of the whole book. That's what Revelation is all about. You know, get ready. Be, be prepared and be ready. And for those of us that know Christ, what that means is just live by faith. Live in expectation of what we have to look forward to. These are all things that, uh, that are coming our way and that we should be very, very excited uh, and anxiously awaiting. You know, one of the things that is so clear, verse 7 uh, it says, blessed are those who keep the prophecy of this book. And again, th- that is just an expression of our faith. It's saying live in obedience. Skip ahead to verse 14, chapter 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Those who wash their robes is talking about being washed in the blood of Christ. It's again emphasizing the only thing that will qualify us for heaven is Jesus. And the fact that he has shed his blood for us so that our sins could be covered and so that we could could have life in him. Our names are written in the book of life because of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We're justified by faith only. It's not talking about our works. It's talking about what we do as an expression of our faith. And then verse 15 kind of gives the contrast to that. This is the reality check in the midst of heaven's going to be awesome We keep getting the reality check, verse 15, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. These are the people that we read about last week that that stand before God at the the great white throne judgment and will be judged on the basis of their works. And you might remember I said last week, if we're judged on works, we want it to be on the basis of Jesus' works, not our own. If we're judged on our own works, we're in trouble. And, and these people, because they didn't trust in Christ, they are being judged on their own works, and they're, they're outside of heaven. They've been thrown into this lake of fire. But then again, he just reminds us, verse 16, I mean, seven, let's skip ahead to 17. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He's saying, look, come, the invitation is open. Yes, there are going to be those who don't have faith. Yes, there are going to be those who are outside of heaven. But the invitation is to come. In fact, Jesus himself says, come. He is the one who invites us to come, to take of this water of life. It says, without cost, meaning 
we don't earn, we don't bring anything to the table. We're not giving God anything for him to give that to us in return. But he offers that invitation to us to come. And in verses 18 and 19, end with you know, a, a strong warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It's a solemn reminder to us that we dare not add to or take away from what God says. Period. That's true of the book of Revelation. That's true of the rest of Scripture. We don't add to or take away. And what the Scripture says is the only way for us to enter heaven, this place that we've read about, is going to be mind-blowingly incredible. The only way is to have your name written in the book of life. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. What a great way to end this book. A book that talks about wrath. A book that talks about judgment a lot. But ends on the note of grace. It ends with an invitation saying, come. If anyone's thirsty, come. The invitation is open for everyone to come. And it's the grace of the Lord Jesus that needs to be with us all. So I just ask you again, or maybe this is your first time to be with us today. So you've not heard me ask this question before. Have you received the grace of Christ? Has there been a time in your life where where you've kind of woken up and realized, I need to surrender my heart to Jesus? And I haven't done that. And if that's the case for you today, I want to give you that opportunity to come. Jesus himself, this is not my invitation. This is the invitation of Jesus saying, I want you to come. I invite you to come to me in faith. That means believing that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross and he rose again on the third day. And it's turning away from our sin and saying, Jesus, I'm giving my heart to you. I'm coming to you today. So come. Let's bow for prayer. And if there's never been a time in your life where you have come to Christ, where you have said, yes, Jesus, I'm giving myself to you. I'm trusting you. I invite you to come to him right now. And you can do that by praying a prayer of surrender and faith. If you're not sure what to say, then pray something like this. I'll just pray and I'll pause after each phrase and allow you to pray in your own way in your own heart back to God as well if you're ready to trust in Christ and tell him something like this God thank you that you want a relationship with me I don't deserve it I know that I'm sinful and I'm sorry for that I believe Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sins Right now, I give myself fully to you. Lord Jesus, come into my life right now. I trust you with all that I am. Thank you for saving me. 
In your name I pray. Amen.